All right, good morning, everybody. It's、uh, a great joy for me to be here to share the Word of God with you. And、uh, every first Sunday of the month, we have something that we put up、uh, 10 minutes before service starts. There's something called the prelude. And that was to、um, not just have live music. I get that live music is a. Is something that maybe would want us to come earlier, but it's to help us prepare our hearts for worship. So, I just before I start, I just want to talk about two things that we have in our service that perhaps I didn't explain in depth before when we changed our service order, and that's the prelude. And in the prelude, people can come, and then what we want to do is we want to prepare our hearts for service. A lot of the things that、um, maybe We might be going through in our busy day, in our busy schedule, even just to get here、uh, just a few minutes before service starts. We get that time in quietness, in reverence, to give that time up to, to God in prayer to prepare our hearts.、Um, I don't know about you, but for me, it really is when I sit down and then we get to pray, it's, I'm really just overwhelmed that God would invite a sinner like me. Into his place, into the sanctuary, and just、uh, the grace, the sheer grace that I've been given to be able to worship with the saints,、um, it just is truly overwhelming. And I just thank God that we can do something like this. And afterwards, after the benediction, we've included something called the postlude, right? So, if LUD means music, right? So, pray is before, there's a before music and a postlude, so there's an after music. And so, in the postlude, we, just like you would physically gather up your belongings, right? As you would leave physically the sanctuary, a postlude is where you would spiritually start to gather up your belongings. You want to lift up a prayer that the seed that was planted would not fall by the wayside or, or the road or grow up. In a thorny place or among rocks, but the seed that would be planted would grow up、uh, and be placed in a strong, sturdy foundation, good soil, so that it could grow and bear fruit. So we have a postlude after the benediction that we can, even for 30, to, 30 seconds to 60 seconds, just lift up that prayer, gather up our. Spiritual belongings and head out. So it's not just an out of sight, out of mind experience we have every Sunday, but it truly is something that we recognize that the Lord has given us that is a joy. It's truly an honor and a joy and grace and mercy that we've been given that we can gather together in worshiping God. And so at this time, as we open up the word,、uh, let's start this time with a prayer. <clears throat> Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from ear to the heart, from the heart of the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. This morning's passage is from 1 Samuel. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel. And so today's passage is from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Verses 17 to 27. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. And if you have a Pew Bible in front of you, 
you can find that passage on page 218. And once you have found it, let us rise from our seats in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the, whole, before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him men went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. My friends, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. I just have three points for you this morning. And as I tell you the three points, I want you to know that it's really about the Word of God, the Spirit of God, which leads to the guidance of God. But the three points are the relentless dependence on God's law. Relentless dependence, God's law. I make no qualms about where I stand on certain issues, no apologies on certain views when it comes to seeing current events and happenings with a biblical worldview. I believe that the Word of God says what it says, and I believe what the Word of God says. It is logical, reasonable, sensible, it makes you more rational, practical, sane, and sober. On the other hand, divergence from the Word of God, that's what we are witnessing today. Divergence from the Word of God would have you less coherent, irrational, 
You lose the ability to make cogent arguments, hopelessly losing yourself into sheer emotional appeal, and you are given into your impulses, becoming more like beasts rather than man. When you abandon the word of God, you abandon your soul. Most recently, people have lost their minds over Florida's HB 1557 being signed into state law this past week. Unless you have been living under a rock, perhaps, you have heard about this. This has been in the news cycle over COVID, stealth Omicron, ooh, very scary, right? Gas prices and inflations, actually very scary. The war in Ukraine, amongst other things. Florida's HB, or House Bill 1557, is the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which reinforces parents' fundamental rights to make decisions regarding the upbringing of their children. The bill prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity from kindergarten to third grade and prohibits instruction that is not age-appropriate for students. And yes, that means a teacher, according to this bill, cannot, without the permission of the parent, instruct their students about their past weekend with their boyfriend. You should teach them as a teacher what 2 plus 2 equals, and it equals 4. That's your job. But apparently not everyone agrees with this. The bill has been dubbed by the media as the Don't Say Gay Bill, even though there is not even one mention of this word in the bill. We are riddled with marches, TikToks. If you don't know what a TikTok is, that's the place you go for verbal vomit captured on video. News interviews of teachers bemoaning the fact that they cannot share their intimate details of their gay affairs with five-year-old children. In a video scoop obtained by a reporter, we now know that Disney has joined the fray in full force. One, um, now this pains me possibly more than the average person, only because I was a huge Disney fan. One movie in particular, uh, my wife and I went over an elder's house the other week and they had music in the background for their girl, their little girl. And when this movie soundtrack came on, even though I hadn't watched the movie in decades, I was able to still sing it word for word. You know, there's something sweet and almost kind. No? He was, no, okay, never mind. Um, yeah. Um, but probably also because I had it on loop as a kid, I don't know. But the Disney brand used to be associated with magic and children's wishes. It used to be associated with magic and children's wishes. I think it's still about magic, though. It's only now black magic. And the dreams are not kids' dreams, but the adults with perversions that want to indoctrinate your kid with their agendas. Disney had an all-hands meeting about the Florida Parental Rights Bill 
where the executive producer would openly share about how she and her team implemented a, quote, not at all secret gay agenda, unquote, and is regularly, quote, adding queerness, unquote, to children's programming. Another video showed the diversity and inclusion manager of Disney explaining how Disney altered gendered greetings and language in their theme parks. This manager would explain that it's no longer something like, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, but now it's, we say, this is what the manager would say, we say dreamers of all ages. We train, this is a quote, we train, we provide a training for all of our cast members in relationship to that, so now they know it's hello everyone or hello friends. We don't want to just assume because someone might be, in our interpretation, may be presenting as female, that they may not want to be called princess. The Disney corporate president would also chime in saying, we have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories and yet we don't have enough leads and narratives in which gay characters just get to be characters and not have to be about gay stories. A few moments later in this video, during this meeting, she would start to cry. And while she's crying, she would say, I hope this is a moment where Shoot, the 50% of the tears, sorry, are coming. We just don't allow each other to go backwards. And there it is. There it is. It's for everyone to see. In this progressive movement, as you continue to progress, every hill is a hill to die on. Because otherwise, otherwise what? Otherwise, they will be forced to stop and ponder, even if it's for a moment, wonder for a second, examine for a minute, that if the path that they're on isn't actually a good path, but in fact is a path to destruction. When you have a society continually and obstinately going down this path, what can you do? And so how does God respond when a stubborn and defiant people just don't get it? And it leads us to our first point. In verses 17 to 19, the first point is relentless. See, after all the happenings with Saul from chapter 9 to the middle of chapter 10 that we went over, Samuel once again calls the people to gather at Mizpah, and his message is exactly the same as it was in chapter 8. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you have said to him, set a king over us. And you might think, but Samuel, you already said all this. Why are you starting off this historic moment in the history of Israel on such a sour note? And indeed it was a historic moment. The first king of Israel was about to be chosen. Why start on this negative note? I don't like your tone, Sam, is what people might have thought. 
Why couldn't it have been done with a little more sensitivity, a little more empathy, a little bit more finesse? Samuel, why do you always have to pick fights? And here I think a deep lesson is to be learned. Samuel didn't start off the meeting with a smile saying this, before I start, let me just say that it's really good to be with you all here. I just said what's probably 90% of how all meetings are started. We sometimes care more about etiquette and decorum than truth. However, truth must come before any formality, pomp, or procedure. Truth takes precedence. Without truth, you are left with a shell of a society with nothing inside. What fills this shell with life is truth. And perhaps God loves us too much to be nice to us at times. He may have to ruin a nice occasion or a nice memory of a Disney movie to get your attention and take notice. And for what? For truth. So that you would turn away from the road to destruction and turn to the truth. And that's the thing about people whose hearts have been softened versus a people whose hearts are still hardening. They're hardened and they're still hardening as time goes on. You would listen to a message about the sins of the flesh and this is the, something that the world is given into, enslaved by, but they can't help but to follow the prince of this world and drink the poison cup down to its dregs. You will listen to something like Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual relation. It's not just the letters of the alphabet that I just talked about, but it's any kind of sexual relation that's outside what God has given between a man and his wife. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. By the way, sorcery in the Greek is the word pharmakeia, where we, where we get pharmaceuticals. It's where you would take something and it would bring you into a an inebriated state. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is something that the people in the church of Galatia would have heard often, especially as they read this letter that Paul had written them, and they would study its contents. And when you would sit on this, when you sit on this, this passage, you can either do one of two things. You can leave and find another place that does not have this message. Join another assembly where they will match the tone that you want or you will repent. Someone who is given into these things 
won't be able to adhere to, let alone listen to the straightforward teachings of God's word. Instead of reading, thus says the Lord, you will say, did God really say this? Did God really say? Which is the first deception in the Bible. But those whose hearts God is changing, those whom he is bringing to repentance you have been given ears to hear and hearts of understanding. And it does not come from your intellect or power. It only can come by the power of the Spirit of God. So let our occasions of celebration, let our fond memories be ruined if it means God will get your attention and lead you to repentance. Because after these verses in Galatians, what are the very next verses? He says, these are the works of the flesh. This is what you were given into. This is what you were deceived by. You thought these things were good, and yet it led you down even further into the path of hopelessness and despair. You were even more prideful. You were more stubborn. You were more engaged in bitter rivalry with one another. But after that, the works of the flesh, what do we see in Galatians chapter 5? We see, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the turn. Those that are led into repentance are led into joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And God is relentless in giving that message so that when we hear, we would turn back to God. Turn back to the truth, so we will no longer live a life of an empty shell, but it will be filled with truth. The next point is dependence. In verses 20 to 24, Samuel has them all sit by their tribes and families. Samuel walks them through the process of choosing their king by the casting of lots, right? Casting lots was how things were done many times in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And in the ancient world, it could have been done with stones or sticks or even coins. And if we want something pretty similar to what's going on today, casting lots is very much like flipping a coin to see who gets first possession in a football game. We see it happen in the division of the land under Joshua in the book of Joshua. It was used to determine God's will for certain situations like this one. Certain offices and priestly functions were determined by Lot. Jonah's shipmates also casted lots to see who had brought this calamity upon them, right? Who brought God's wrath upon us that we were about to die? And the lot landed on Jonah and they chucked him overboard, right? 
Roman soldiers would cast lots to see who would get Jesus' garments before they crucified him. And the last time, and this is an important point, the last time we see in the Bible where lots are being cast is in Acts 1, where they cast lots to see who would replace Judas. That's the last time we see the people of God casting lots. See, God would use the casting of lots to show his people what his will was for certain situations. In Proverbs 16.33, it says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they, did, they wanted to find out what the will of God was. And so they did a casting of lots. What about now, though? What about now? Do we cast lots or should we cast lots? Should we roll the die? And the answer is no, unless you want to weed out people, which I have done. But that's another story. But the general answer is no. Nowhere in the New Testament does it instruct us to cast lots anymore. Why? Because now we have the completed Word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us. The Word and the Spirit through prayer is what we see the apostle in Acts, the apostles in Acts go through when they go through every major decision thereafter. And how we also go through every major decision then is through the word and spirit in prayer. That's how we should go through every major decision in our church today. But going back to Samuel's time, God used the casting of the lot to disclose his will because God knew how stubborn his people were. He knew that they wouldn't listen to Samuel's testimony. They wouldn't listen to this one man's testimony of what God had said. So he lets them do something that would seem like chance. But we all know that there is no such thing as chance. But by this method, the people were convinced that no favoritism from one person, something like, oh, the pastor's just choosing someone he likes. No favoritism would take place, and so that would alleviate any potential disputes. So through the casting of the lots, right, God would publicly disclose what he had done in secret with Samuel and Saul just a chapter ago. And in this public confirmation, the choice is clear. The lot would fall on the tribe of Benjamin, then the clan of the Matrites, and then the son of Kish, Saul. But this is how utterly dependent Israel was on God. Even though Saul was chosen, he was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find him. And so they have to go back to God. Where is this man? And so it's God who points out that he was hiding himself among the luggage that people brought on this trip. So maybe in some ways, Saul was really modest or at least very shy. He is the very typical shy giant, right? But the point is that even in the smallest matters, the minutiae, God's people are utterly dependent on him. That's the focal point of what's being depicted here. 
So whether we start a school or buy a building or whether we add a prelude or postlude to our service order, the point is we cannot manage without God. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is literally what happens when a child is inside its mother's womb. When God says, let there be life, that life is then inextricably tied to the mother. What she eats, the baby eats. Where she goes, the baby goes. And what she listens to, the baby listens to. For that life to survive and even thrive, it utterly depends on the mother. By the way, only a woman can be a mother. Abraham Lincoln is the one that famously said, if you call a tail on a dog a leg, how many legs does a dog have? And the answer is four legs, because just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. But this is what God has given us as a society. He has given us this incredible blessing of a mother, that every single one of us here, we have come forth because of a mother because of what she has sacrificed. And in some ways, that's how we are to see the people of God. We are utterly dependent on God. And without Him, we are lost. Without God, we cannot do even the smallest things. Without God holding the universe together, there would be no universe. And once He lets go, that's it. Uh, my wife is pregnant right now, and the baby apparently moves a lot, a lot. Um, my wife doesn't like it too much, but I imagine it's because the baby just wants to see the world, you know, just wants to get out. So moves a lot to, to much discomfort to my wife. And then, um, and I would tell uh, Esther, like, oh, it's probably because she just wants to see the world really fast. And Esther would say, not that the baby could understand, but Esther replied to what I said to the baby. She's addressing the baby. Not yet. You need to grow a little more, right? That's true. There's a time to be able to grow. You can't just go out whenever you want. I want to point out that in this world, there are those that would confuse autonomy with freedom, you claim that you don't want dependence on anyone. I don't want to depend on anyone or anything. I want to be free. I want to be free. But autonomy is not freedom. Autonomy from the mother for the baby would mean instant death. Autonomy from God is not liberty, but doom. When God calls us out of the world into dependence to Him, that's true freedom. And as we see here, as God's will is done, Saul is then freed from his past, his tribal pudiness, 
his shyness to serve in the capacity that God has ordained him to do, then that's freedom. My third and last point is God's law from verses 25 to 27. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. The word used to translate uh, into rights and duties is the Hebrew word mishpat, right? Mishpat is one word, but it means these two things, rights and duties, right? And these were designed to prevent the oppressive style of rule that Samuel would warn against in chapter 8. What he instated and ensured then was a constitutional monarchy. These would be the rights and duties, again, the mishpat, that would govern the king. The king would govern the people, but the king would be governed by the mishpat. And this was to prevent the king from becoming a despot and to rule fascistically. So he would take... Liberty, so he wouldn't take liberties over his people that he ought not to. And God is teaching his people that there are various authorities in the world, but God is the one ruling over every single authority. He is ruling over them all. All authorities are placed under his rule and law. They are placed under his mishpat. That means every single authority will be judged according to the mishpat. They will be judged according to his rule and law. Something significant happens after the gathering. There were shouts of affirmation and acclamation, long live the king. And now as people start to make their way back to their homes, there were men of valor who God touched, their hearts God had touched, but they were also worthless, no good, insufferables who kept saying, how can this chap save us? Who is this country hick, this Benjaminite farm boy and loser of donkeys who hides himself in baggage, hidden baggage man? How can he save us? We shouldn't miss this point either. And that point is following God's law causes division. You can say you're a Christian. That's no problem. You can say you go to church. No problem. But once you decide to follow God's law, that's a problem. There will be opposition. And the story here is about God's people following his lead in, cho in the choosing of a king, in God's choosing of a king, and perhaps you cannot help then but to see the analogy to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the office of king that is presented here and something that God has ordained for his people. And it's also the person that he chooses that the people are rebelling against. They don't want a king over them. And they definitely don't want Jesus Christ. But this is the person that God has chosen to save his people. Jesus, knowing this, would say in Luke chapter 12, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. 
From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People who knew Jesus would say in John chapter 6, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary? You know what that means? That means I know this guy. I knew him when he was a little kid. I know you. You're not that guy, pal. How can this man save us? What does he have to do with how I face the big things to the little things in life? What does he have to do with death? or marriage, or children? How can he alleviate my fears or the ruin that is upon us? How can this man save us? And on that point, when you follow the word of God, there will be division. If everyone likes you, and this is something that you really want, I think perhaps there is a place in all of our hearts where we just want to be liked. Why do you want people to hate you? You know, some people go to me, it's like, you know, if you choose this path, people will hate you. And I would say, this is the path. This is the way. It's right there in the Bible. What else can I do? Well, people will hate you. And people do. And people have. But if everyone likes you, because this is kind of what you want, you don't want anybody in your workplace to hate you. That would be a hostile work environment. You don't want that. You don't want everybody in your family to hate you. You don't bring up politics. You don't bring up religion and Thanksgiving dinners. You want everybody to like you. But the truth of the word of God is, when you follow God's law, there will be division. When you follow Christ, there will be division. In fact, if people, if all the people like you, Jesus has something to say to that. Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, he says this, woe to you. So if everyone likes you, he says, woe to you. Not blessed are you. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, if you really think about it, the only way you can have everyone like you, the only way you can have all the people speak well of you is if you are two-faced. One side, you talk this way, and the other side, you change your face and talk another way. That's the only way that you can have all people speak well of you, and we have a name for that, and that name is politician. But when all people speak well of you, Jesus says, woe to you. Because the word of God divides. The servant of God divides. The warning to us, then, is that we would not be so blinded to think that we could save ourselves and therefore reject the one lifeline that God extends to those that want to be saved from a world that is passing, perishing, that will not continue. 
the one thing that we ought to understand is that even though the truth divides, we need to know which side we are on. Are you on the side of the truth or are you on the side where you want to please everyone still? Because the truth divides. And this is why the first thing Jesus says when he starts his ministry in the Gospels is repent, turn back, turn around, and turn to the truth. Repent, turn back from the sins that will not save this large road that leads to destruction, that will lead to death. This is a guarantee. There is no escape and turn to the one that has conquered death. Turn to truth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us and the spirit of God that softens our hearts to be able to hear. We admit that we are a stubborn and obstinate people. Oh God, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that even though we would not want to, that you would change our hearts, even though we may think is impossible, that you would give us hope where the world cannot give us hope. And even though our lives are a stormy mess right now, our placing of trust in you would lead to a peace a peace only the world uh, the world cannot give, but only that you can give. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God so that we can continue to li live and lead a life of repentance, knowing that the kingdom of heaven, just as Jesus Christ said, is at hand. Let's pray.